Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Lead, Sell, Grow, the Human Experience Podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another show. Today's guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. His name is Bedros Koulian. He is an American entrepreneur and a believer in the American dream. He and his family are immigrants who escaped communism from the former Soviet, Soviet Union to find freedom and opportunity and a better life here in the States. Today, Bedros is a serial entrepreneur and investor in over a dozen industry-leading brands and businesses. He's the founder of Fit Body Bootcamp, three times listed in the Inc. magazine, as well as Entrepreneur Magazine, as 100 fastest-growing franchise brands in the world. Holy cannoli. Last time I talked to Bedros, I think it was over 700 locations. Uh, Bedros is the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Man Up, How to Cut the BS and Dominate in Business and in Life. Bedros believes in the power of the human spirit and uses the stage, TV, social media, his podcast, and his blog to share his immigrant edge and the American dream story. Bedros, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much, Eric. Appreciate the opportunity for having me, brother. Oh my gosh. So just, just to give the audience a little bit of how, how did I even come across you? Um, last January, I was speaking on stage. I was, you know, I was a day one speaker. Everybody keeps the, you know, Bedros was a day two speaker. That's where all the good speakers were. Right. So I'm a day one guy. And uh, this guy comes on Bedros Cooley and we're at the event put on by Barbara Allen. She's a good friend of mine at the uh, Great American Summit in Texas. And Bedros comes on stage and just rocks it. You'll hear how genuine he is, how he speaks, just an amazing communicator. But there's something you said that really clicked. Now, let me tell you where I was at that point in my life, Bedros. I had just moved to Florida, probably within the last year from Maryland, because I hated their policies. I wanted my kids to not wear a freaking mask. I wanted them to be free, so I moved to Florida, packed up and moved. Bedros is on stage and he says, and I quote, people are always asking me, why in the fuck am I still in California? And here's what I tell them. If I leave, who's going to stay back and fight? And right there, I've never felt like a little bitch more than I felt the second I heard you say that. I got to tell you that because I... I just did exactly what you didn't, what you chose not to do. And it's, I started thinking like, did I, did I make the right decision or did I not? Anyway, so I, right there, I'm like, I got a man crush on this dude. He's amazing. We have a very similar history from the Soviet Union, immigrants. And then I see the Squire program. And that's a program that Bedros designed for fathers and their sons uh, between the ages of 12 and 16. And it's a day starting at 5 a.m. to about 6.30 p.m. of just grueling physical and mental just work. And when Max and I, my 13-year-old son, just went through it a few weeks ago, Max came home a, a changed kid. He's a different kid. He's thinking differently. Like he's motivated. He, he wants to do the hard stuff. He told me he wants to do that program once a year. So, nice. so we'll be back, Vedros. Anyway, so that. right there at Squire Program, I asked Bedros if he'd come on a show because you made such an impact on my life. And um, I'm so glad that you agreed. So thank you for being here. 
Well, thank you, my friend. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I got to tell you, man, it was so great seeing you and Max just go through the Squire program because it's it's no easy task for a young man, especially because it's such a rite of passage into manhood. Um, you know, it's something that cultures used to have and they no longer have. And these young boys wonder, do I have what it takes to be a man? Do I have what it takes to sit at the table and make the decisions and stand in the gap and fight and for our freedom, for the rights of of humanity and that that squire program really with a dad like you and the other 30 dads and sons that went through my gosh the feedback that we get every time that my son gets it he knows what his role and responsibility is he's excited about standing in the gap and serving humanity and that's what we want man servant leaders you know and so uh just grateful that you guys trusted us and came out to the squire program yeah, you got you got full trust, and we're going to talk about some of your other programs just for men because those are uh, probably life changing programs. Just seeing the instructors that you had with you in California, you spend a weekend with those guys, and your life will be changed. There's no doubt about it. But Bedros, take me back a little bit for those who may not know you. Take me back to the to some of your first days in America as a, as an immigrant from Armenia. Well, um, <laughs> the first days in America were, were kind of strange. In fact, I remember the first day. It was June 16, 1980, because uh, it was a hot summer day. Um, that's when we arrived in the United States. And what was really neat to me was my mom and dad had had really built up the United States. Like, it's, it's a land of opportunity. You can have anything you want. And I guess for a six-year-old, you know, in their defense, I was six years old when we came my imagination made it much bigger and grander. And I thought, like, we're going to have all the food. Because remember, coming from Soviet Union, especially Armenia, um, food is rationed, water is rationed, power, uh, uh, gas, is everything's rationed. Mm -hmm. And the, the communist regime is always looking over your shoulder, limiting your opportunities and growth. And I would always hear, and you know, this is when we're kids, People don't think that we're listening, but kids are always listening. So I would always hear my mom and dad in Armenia talk from a place of fear about how they always have to watch out and look after their back, et cetera. And my brother, who was significantly older than me, uh, 14 years older, he was about to turn 19 years old and go into the Russian and the Soviet military. And so and my dad's like, there's no way that I'm going to allow my son to go into the military of this country that came to occupy Armenia. So for that reason, and for the reason that he was no longer, uh, he no longer wanted to belong to the Communist Party, um, he said, we're going to escape. And so when we escaped, we come here. And I guess the the vision that I saw in my head, like like if you said, hey, we're going, and I, I pictured Disneyland, where like you could smell cotton candy, and there's like restaurants with glass windows, and you could see all this food, and there's like characters running around and just like hugging you. Bro, we come here. And um, we're staying in a one bedroom apartment that, so it's a two bedroom apartment that my dad's acquaintance, not even a friend is living in. He says, you and your family of five could stay in this one bedroom for 30 days. And then my wife wants you guys out. Hey man, cool. So in 30 days, my dad and uh, older brother, older sister had to find a job. They multiple jobs, a paper route, working at a pizzeria, cleaning tables, pumping gas. Um, and then, of course, we had to get our paperwork straightened out so we can get Section 8 housing, which is government-assisted housing. And within 30 days, we found ourselves living in Section 8 housing. But man, those first days, you don't speak the language, you don't understand the culture, 
it's certainly not what you had in your mind in terms of what you thought you were coming to, because once again, there's lack of food, there's lack of friends, there's lack of clothes. Uh, we came here with like $150 in my mom and dad's pocket. And all of a sudden they're yelling at you and telling you to go back to your own effing country, you foreigner, you don't belong here like this. You're taking away our American jobs and you're hearing them say that to your mom and dad. Um, and so it was a massive shock, Eric, to my system. And I remember uh, my sister coming home probably within the first month or two. She had a job already. Uh, she was a waitress at a pizza joint that my dad was a busboy at. And she came home crying, saying that the owner of the pizza joint was like being handsy with with her and was was touching her. And, you know, my dad's like, hey, just suck it up. We need that job. You need that job. I need that job. And she was crying, man. And I remember telling her in Armenian that one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be so rich that she'll never have to work a day again. Uh, interestingly enough, today she doesn't work. She works for me and uh, she I, I pay her to stay home. Uh, and look after my mom and dad, who are now in their 80s. And so that dream of mine came true. And uh, but but the first first days in America, man, were a shock to the system. And uh, but I think part of it was the narrative that I had in my head did not match the reality that we experienced. And that's why. So, you know, my my similar story, I thought the streets were paved with gold and there was money on the streets. I swear to God. I think I was eight or nine when we when we touched down in 91 in March and we had we were going to Maryland. We hit New York first and I walked did out. Did you come through JFK? We came through JFK. Yeah, so so did we. We came Italy, uh, Armenia to Italy to JFK to Southern California. We had to. So we came in the late, you know, we left 89, got here 90 or 91, but we had to live in Austria and then Italy mm. and then that route. And uh, I, I like when you just said that, I'm like, holy shit. I remember it's like the Michael Jackson video. Remember where he's walking and the streets are just lighting up. <laughs> That's what I thought it would be like. Right. <laughs> for money was everywhere. And uh, yeah, no, you're right. My mom, you know, in Russia, well, in former Soviet Union, you had to boil milk. I don't know if you remember. It was like cartons that were like little triangles and you had to cut it, boil it because it wasn't pasteurized or anything. Yep. Nobody told her the fucking memo. So. When she came here, we would get food. It was six of us in a two-bedroom apartment, similarly. And we would get this brown bag of food that was donated to us by, like, the Jewish services. And it was cornflakes. Not even the frosted ones, not with the tiger, the ones with the fucking rooster. Right, right, <laughs> right. My mom would pour that in a bowl, boil the milk. Oh, my God. Put the boiling milk on top of that cereal. Oh, man. Anyway, sorry. Bro, isn't it funny though when you look back? Like, I wouldn't trade any of those hardships. Looking back in the in those moments, I remember as a kid thinking, like, if I could die right now, this would be great because I was just being laughed at by the neighborhood kids. And <laughs> one time, um, in one of the Section Eight housing, I got lice so bad that, uh, and my parents were so broke, we couldn't afford lice treatment from the drugstore. My mom had my dad siphon out gasoline from a parked car to wash my hair. <laughs> And I remember thinking, like, this is so fucking embarrassing. Like, how am I going to go to school after, like, my mom is doing this to me, right? But uh, now I look back and I'm like, that's what built me into this, like, machine, you know? So I'm so grateful for the experience in hindsight. That's who you are. Yeah, there are some interesting stories as an immigrant. I got picked. I mean, we moved into an all-black neighborhood in Baltimore. Not wow. only did I not speak English, I was the only white kid wearing, like, you know, goodwill hand-me-downs for my sister. 
So I remember walking and same story. My parents got jobs right away. And my mom, Mm -hmm. you know, they'd leave the house 7 a.m., not come home till 11 p.m. And I remember walking home and this kid just kept pushing me from the back. I didn't even know what the hell he wanted. Well, without looking, I just kind of donkey kicked and I got him right in the throat. Oh, wow. He falls down and starts like shaking. His mom comes out and beats my ass. My sister comes out and starts fighting his like it was it was insane. They called the cops. So my parents got home late at night. There I am sitting there with the cops. They don't speak English. These guys are threatening to sue immigrants. I mean, we went through some interesting, interesting stuff. So now here you are. By the way, how many franchise franchisees do you have now who've opened up locations for for Fit Body Bootcamp? Uh, j- just under 700 locations now. Uh, COVID was not kind to us. We were definitely m- much more than that. But in, during uh, 2020, uh, the 10 months uh, from March to the end of the year, we lost 218 franchise locations mm. uh, due to COVID. We've gained about two thirds of those back. Um, and we're definitely on the upswing again. But man, I got to tell you, COVID was not good to gyms and and uh, and restaurants. No, it wasn't. So yeah. w- what's the benefit of owning a location versus just starting your own gym? That's a good question. And this goes for all franchises, not just Fit Body Bootcamp. But, uh, and this doesn't mean that every franchise does this. So I should preface that. For example, um, you've probably heard of Quiznos, yeah. right? The sub company, they made sub sandwiches. Well, they were obviously a better sub sandwich than Subway. However, <clears throat> they're no longer around. And the reason they're not around, even though they had better bread, they had better cheese, they had better meats, and they toasted your toast was key yeah right it was key it was bro i switched i paid more and went from subway to quiznos however they lacked the systems to support their franchisees and therefore they eventually went out of business uh and then once a franchise starts losing trust with their franchisees because for every location that closes uh we as a franchisor fit body boot camp and all franchises have to report that on our FDD franchise disclosure document the next year. Uh, and that's overseen by the federal trade commission. So if you're going to become a franchisee and you go, Hey, Bedros, I see you guys lost 218 locations. Oh, it was during the pandemic. Got it. Makes sense. Black Swan year. But if every year we're losing 200 locations and it's a failed location, failure to open failure to launch, then you're going to be like, you know what? I think I'm going to go do something else. So the benefit of a franchise is that they typically is a proven system already. Someone's already proven the model. They should have done for you support in terms of how to hire, how to fire, how to find a location, how to build it out, how to market, how to sell, how to retain your customers or get new customers. And then when you run into the typical entrepreneurial problems, you don't have to figure it out. You just go to the corporate headquarters and you go, hey guys, here's a problem I'm having. And, uh, you know, for example, when you own a restaurant, I'm sure from time to time people get food poisoning. Well, if you own a franchise brand, there's probably a process to go through. If you have your own brand of a restaurant, you don't know if you're going to get sued or not. You don't know how to handle that. You don't know what to say and how to say it. And so the beautiful thing about a franchise that comes with the right support is the success rate is usually five to eight times higher than a non-franchise business model. But again, Quiznos, Cold Stone Creamery, right now, F45 in my space in the fitness industry, F45 is losing locations left and right. The CEO of the company 
they're auctioning off his his property in Australia. Um, they cut 50% of their workforce at their corporate office. So think about new franchisees have 50% less people to talk to for support uh, because just a string of bad decisions at the corporate level. And so uh, in our case, we believe in fanatical support. Fit Body Bootcamp, we believe that that group training is the most effective way to train because you can, instead of one-on-one training, for fitness and fat loss, it's one on many, which means the profit margins are higher. People love working out in a group environment. It's not a fad. It's group training has been around for hundreds of years, practically. And um, we are just nuts about supporting our franchisees. Franchise, franchisee health, when I say health, meaning financial and mental health so that they have time freedom and financial freedom are the two highest priorities at our corporate office. And we figured out that if franchisee health is uh, priority, then we don't have to worry about our financial health here at the headquarters. The byproduct of their health is our health. That's awesome. And I had a chance to visit your corporate headquarters for one of the trainings there. And I got to tell you, you could you could tell the culture of a company. So so here's one thing I noticed. There's a mini fridge in there that had Gatorade, sodas, water, just the simple stuff. Every single bottle and can was facing forward like just just that it was so clean it was just very nice environment awesome so the reason i asked about these locations because we talked about you coming to america didn't speak any english five of you crammed up in one bedroom food stamps section eight housing to almost 700 locations after covid killed 200 plus right so Mm -hmm. how how do you, where was the transformation? How did you go from poor immigrant Soviet mentality to capitalism, entrepreneur, the Bedros who you are today? And I want to talk about your five rules for, for, for the game of life too, um, after we hear about your mindset. Sure. sure. So gosh, where do I begin? Uh, well, I can tell you this. I'm going to lead with the bad news. There is no, what is the one thing I did to go from poor, broke immigrant to rich, successful American dream? There was no, I just did this and it worked. What I can, I can tell you is success leaves clues, right? You know this, you're a very successful person. And so looking back, if you went back to 1.0 version of Eric, you will get to where you are today faster with less frustration, less friction, less lost money because you have the knowledge to get there. So success leaves clues. And so I was very fortunate enough. So think about this. I started off as a, uh, I was a fat kid in high school and I wanted to go to the prom. And so I asked one of the football players who was in my science class, because he's in great shape. And I said, Hey man, I want to ask that girl, Nakaya to the prom next year, senior year. Uh, For me to do that, I need to be in shape. I figured if I'm in great shape, she'll be like, man, you're hot, right? Whatever. Young man's thinking. And uh, so he goes, so he takes me to the gym, to the school gym. We work out. He goes, do this all summer long and don't eat fried foods and whatever and eat high protein. Dude, I come back senior year, leaner, more jacked, 30 pounds of fat burnt off. And I look great. People are like giving me so much attention my senior year of high school. I never had the balls to ask Nakaya to the prom. So I never went to the prom, Eric. Uh, <laughs> that's the truth. I wish I could tell a better story, but that's the reality. Uh, but what happened was, I realized more than the physical change, man, my self-esteem, my confidence, ability to connect with people, like all that changed. 
And I said, I, I want to leave high school and become a personal trainer. I know what I want to do in life. So I got certified as a personal trainer, started working in big box gyms. And as you can imagine, if you're working with a personal trainer one-on-one, -on -one, it's not cheap. Uh, like one of my clients, Jim Franco, who became my first mentor, he was paying $620 a month, not to me, to LA Fitness. LA Fitness was paying me $12.50 an hour. But so when you're paying $620 a month for a one-on-one -on -one personal trainer three times a week, and I had a handful of clients, dude, I had built-in mentors like who were good in business and finance and marketing and from all different walks. One of them was like a, a C-level executive of, of Sony. And so during their training them in the gym and helping them get fit, they would impart message to me. They would, they would almost coach me. They would mentor me. And all of a sudden I went from the, like, I would go from the mindset of, okay, trading time for dollars to creating passive income. And I'm like, well, what's passive income, Jim? He goes, you know, when, when you have an asset making money for you, well, what's an asset? He goes, imagine buying a home, putting a tenant in there. That's an asset. That's passive income, the money they're giving you. And this is all between sets of training these people, man. And so I had the good fortune to be exposed to mentors early on when I would nag them. In fact, Jim Franco, I had enough balls to ask him. I said, look, can I train you four days a week, but you don't have to pay extra for the fourth day? It'll be on my time, but I'm going to ask you even more questions. And he goes, and he was a very crusty old man, very, very financially successful. He goes, sure, kid. And um, I guess in my, I'm in my 20s. He was in the 60s. By the way, full circle, he texted me two days ago and uh, hey, hey, kid, call me. We haven't talked for a while, right? He's in his 80s now, I'm assuming. He's in his 80s and still running his company, man, because he wants to, not because he has to. Wow. Just to Fucking That's savage. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, th that guy made such an impact on me. I, dude, I, uh, that book, Man Up, I, he's in my book. I talk about him in my book. And um, anyways, but it's just funny how he recently texted me and I, I still need to call him back. But long story short, he started bringing audio, audio cassette books to me and like, hey, here's Zig Ziglar and Tom Hopkins and Brian Tracy. And then that turns me on to like, Jay Abraham and, and Tony Robbins. And all of a sudden I'm learning like mindset and belief systems. So I stumbled upon mentors because of the job that I had. And then I realized how quickly their knowledge and wisdom of 20, 30, 40 years of knowledge and wisdom, I could extract in a cassette tape or by talking to them. And so I immediately started investing in mentors as soon as I could coaching programs, masterminds, uh, from, you know, these days I have three mentors right now, a speaking coach, a writing coach. And, uh, uh, uh <laughs> one day I plan on doing comedy. So I'm, I'm learning. Yeah. So I'm actually trying to learn stand up now as well. So a stand up coach who, who's teaching me how to do bits. Um, but I believe mentoring is the fastest way to success. And, and when you think about it as a personal trainer, that's what I did. I taught them how to work out right. So they don't have to go through and do the goofy machines and then buy a, 2000 calorie smoothie on the way out right <laughs> negates their their workout you know so i helped them i mentored them and as it turns out they mentored me and i saw the value of mentoring but man i got to tell you anyone who's interested in fast and lasting success they should find a mentor who's already been where they want to be and pay them literally pay them to coach you mentor you guide you show you the way I couldn't agree with you more, but I got to challenge that a little bit because you, th there's a ton of personal, um, what's it called? Um, trainers, right? Sure. A ton of personal trainers. 
you were curious. You were there was something different. Yeah, yeah. You asked yeah. the question, right? Those yeah. guys, listen, I'm sure you weren't the first personal trainer. And if I said how many personal trainers went on to become what you became or even close, chances are not very many. Right. So the Touché. question is, what what was the drive in you that even got you to ask the question? Oh man. And you know what? That's a really good question. The reason I was curious is out of pain. I never, I knew since the day I told my sister, uh, so I was probably six and a half years old when she came crying home when we were two months in the United States, that I'm going to get so rich that you never have to work again. And that I was like, no one's going to tell my mom and dad to go back to their own country. We're never going to have to decide between my dad and an Armenian would say, we run out of, and he would just tell my mom, but again, young ears are always listening. Uh, he would say, we run out of money before we run out of month. And I was like, we're never going to fucking run out of money before we run out of month. We never have to make the decision of, do we pay the water bill or do we pay the lights? And if anyone's asking, you always pay the water bill because you can live in the dark. You can't live without water. And so people are like, what did you decide? I'm like, God, see, if you were faced with that position, you would know, right? But it's like, it's obviously water. What the fuck are you going to do with power? You got candles. You're good. Um, I guess these days, everyone wants to be on their devices. But anyways, long story short, the pain of being broke, the pain of being poor, the pain of being needy, the pain of being at the government's beck and call was so bad for me because I felt helpless. Remember, my mom and dad, my older brother and sister, they can go out and work and at least do something productive towards getting us out of that shit. I felt like I'm a dependent. I felt like I'm just weighing my family down, that I made this promise that one day I'm going to be so rich. So that embedded in me, probably in a more traumatic way, so bad and, and good. You think about Viktor Frankl in the book he wrote. I mean, the trauma that he experienced in the concentration camps were, were, were so extreme. I'm getting fucking goosebumps talking about this, yeah. that he had, he had epiphanies that a normal man cannot have. Because when you're in a concentration camp and you realize that your life might be over, you look at life through a different lens and you come out and you write this book, as Viktor Frankl did, uh, and it changes the, the, the way of humanity. And so when I was so broke, so poor, living in roach-infested, lice-infested apartments, Eric, where my parents worked, my brother and sister worked, and we still didn't have enough money. And all I could feel like is a dependent. And one day, the trauma and the pain of that was so great that I was curious about making money and nothing else. And so I think that is what sparked my curiosity about becoming rich. Uh, quite honestly, I thought being rich was the end all be all. Uh, I didn't realize that money and meaning are the solution to happiness. I later developed the meaning part to be very frank with you. Uh, I didn't give a shit about meaning. Oh, I'm gonna go help poor people. Fuck, I'm poor. I'm gonna help myself first. I'm gonna help my family first. But then when your cup overflows, very quickly you realize, all right, I'm making a lot of money. What else could I do? And then you start helping causes and charities that you believe in. And you realize there's a level of wealth there that cannot be matched by making money. That's that's awesome. And so recently you you had a show, you had a podcast that was all about entrepreneurship. And just I think within the last two weeks, you kind of said, I listened to your very first pot podcast episode of the Bedros Koulian show, and I thought it was freaking awesome. And the way you said it is, hey, yeah, talking about business and entrepreneurship is great, but I want to talk about the whole person and how yes. to succeed. Why, what made you want to do that? You know, it's funny, man. My, my wife right now is going through, um, 
She's uh, enrolled at Pepperdine University, getting her PhD. So through her, I get to learn about the human psyche more than ever. And so I don't know if you knew this or not, but young adulthood is 18 to 42 years old. Like, I didn't realize young adult is considered 42, but so be it. I didn't either. I just turned 42 the day after I came back from the Squire program. There you go. Now you're an old man like I am then. Oh, one more year. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So now I'm 48, but I realized more. And I thought, thought about it. She told me this. I go, hey, what's after young adulthood? And, and she gave me the term and I forgot. But there's a, she goes, she goes, you know what you're doing the last five or six years, right? Because I'm 48 years old now. I go, I have no fucking clue what I'm doing. I, 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 mean, I have an idea of like, I'm, I'm enjoying life. I'm serving humanity. I'm making money. I think I'm leaving a legacy. I'm teaching her. But like, I don't understand what you're saying, wife. Like, what do you mean? Right? Because I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, bro. I'm really not. And people should see that and have hope by that. Because like, I might have to tell you like, Eric, speak to me like I'm a third grader. So I understand, you know, like if you were like, Pedro's come work in my company, I'd be like, bro, you're teaching me too fast. Slow down. Like I'm a third grader <laughs> and I'll learn. But I will never quit. And that's the gift that I have is I'll just keep going until I run through that wall for you. So anyway, but if there's a term, fuck, I forget it now, but beyond 42 years old, when you're into like older adulthood, there's a term called where naturally you have this sense of, I want to contribute to society, to the next generation. I want to help leave a greater place than I found when I got here. The, I forget the term, so I'm not going to try and slaughter it, but I'm like, holy fuck, that's exactly what I'm doing. And um, so, so meaning to me, in my late thirties, I discovered Shriner Children's Hospital. And, um, you know, I suffered a lot as a kid, man, from sexual abuse as a kid to being bullied and beat up by the black gangs and the Mexican gangs throughout uh, Santa Ana, California and stuff. And so uh, there's three causes that I really contribute to, like millions of dollars to, and that's Shriner Children's Hospital, and they help kids whose families can't afford medical treatments, and we've donated multiple seven figures to them over the last 12 years, uh, since I've discovered them, 13 years. Um, the uh, Marine Corps Toys for Tots, every year we shut down the, uh, every right before Christmas, two weeks before Christmas, we shut down Target here. Uh, on a Saturday morning and the whole team goes there and we spend a quarter million dollars in buying toys for kids whose families can't afford a toy. And you know what they do that's so cool, bro? Because you and I came here as kids. I don't know how your first Christmas was, but mine was fucking shitty. Their first I'm Jewish. We couldn't celebrate the Jewish. Holidays. <laughs> now I couldn't even, you know, couldn't celebrate the Christian ones either, man. I'm, right. I was, right. But my kids celebrate them all. So that's perfect. <laughs> bro, you were double screwed as a Jew because. <laughs> yeah. So my my first Christmas. You know, in Armenia, like you get an orange or you get a little bag of walnuts and shit. And I remember that. And that was like a cool thing, man, a gift. And I, all my friends had like, you know, I'd go into their apartments. They'd let me in and they had gifts under the Christmas tree. We didn't even have a Christmas tree, man. We couldn't afford it. And so, but Toys for Tots, what they do, and this is why I love them. Uh, let this be a plug for them. And I have no equity in them. They're obviously part of the Marine Corps. Um, but they will fill up a warehouse with a whole bunch of unwrapped toys. And then the parents bring the kids there the week before. The parents are not allowed to go inside. Fuck, I'm getting goosebumps again. You're asking all the right questions. A Marine will take a child's hand and walk him into the warehouse. The parents have to wait outside. And that kid can pick whatever toy he wants or she wants out of that mountain of toys. Could be a $2 ball. It could be a $200 gaming system. And the reason the parents can't go in there is because, you know, parents will want you to pick the most expensive thing. But that kid gets what they want for Christmas on that fucking Christmas, man. And I, I'm going to start falling apart and crying right now. So 
anyway, and then of course, Compassion International, where we've got 97 kids adopted in third world countries, um, where we help them get their clothing and fresh water and food for their schooling. Uh, these are the things that in my late 30s, as we became financially free, I started to dabble in and felt such great meaning and peace of mind when I put my head down to sleep. And people go, Bedros, what's the legacy you're going to leave? And I go that Andrew and Chloe, my son and my daughter, will take those three charities and will 10x the impact because they had such an earlier start with all of this, the understanding that meaning trumps money. But money is very important. Let's not underestimate that. And that they will 10x the impact that I've had. That's the greatest legacy I can leave. But man, I got to tell you, the meaning piece of it all, and <clears throat> it's just so valuable to me. I just want to fall apart right now. No, that's awesome. Two, two things I want to say to that. So one, Toys for Tots is a Marine Corps Reserve program. And uh, I, was, I spent eight years in the Marine Corps. My last three or four, I was at the Reserve Support Unit in North Carolina. We handled Toys for Tots, me and my team, for 22 counties in North Carolina, starting with Christmas in July. I was the Santa at freaking Golden Corral, where you can come in with a toy and, you know, sit down with Santa yeah. and Golden Corral would give you free food. And um, it was some of the roughest, longest days in the Marine Corps from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. We would go collect toys and then we had a warehouse where we would sort them. By age. Now imagine Marines, like, is this a toy for a four-year-old girl or a five-year-old girl? Right. <laughs> right. Anyway, so we had literally boy side, girl side, zero to two, three to four, five to six, seven, eight, all the way to 13 or 14 bikes. And but in North Carolina, they didn't they didn't come to us. We had to go and deliver these toys. So now mm. we're driving five tons out to churches, some of the poorest areas. And the impact, you're absolutely correct. When those kids get a toy, they wouldn't have gotten one without Toys for Tots. So look, if you're listening, you're going to go into Walmart. You see a box that says Toys for Tots, buy a toy, put it in there. It really goes to children. It's probably the best cause ever. So thank you. That's freaking awesome. Um, okay. The other thing about meaning, I mean, Victor Frankl, right? Man's Search for Meaning, that's the book. Meaning was the his meaning for life, I think he was already a psychiatrist when he got, when he went into the concentration camps and he had a manuscript for the book beforehand, Nazis found it, burned it. Mm. And what he would say, what he said is there were days, he, I think he faced near death almost three times where they were just about to send him to the gas chamber. By luck, he ended up in a different line. One day he was too sick. He faked it. But he said on those days, he would just start picturing what his wife is doing and what his family is doing and what he was going to do when he got out and the book he was going to write in his practice. And he came out with a therapy called Logotherapy. Mm -hmm. and after reading that book, and I, I do some work with veterans. I'm, a, I'm on a board for a nonprofit organization that helps prevent veteran suicide. It's called The Long Walk Home. Um, and I got certified in Logotherapy just so for nothing else but to understand what trauma is because i don't we don't understand it just understand what trauma is so hearing you say victor franklin what he does is really freaking awesome okay my i was actually one of the questions i don't plan how i'm going to ask questions but you just answered the question that i was going to ask you and that was you know you've made it you can do whatever the hell you want 
but you're putting so much emphasis on men developing what a man is. Um, one of the things you said is we're at war. There's a war going on against masculinity. There's a war going on against what being a man is like in this little pamphlet that you have, there's 30 rules, um, 30 rules for how to live a life of impact. Um, I was, the question was, why do you give a shit? Why don't you just go live your life and not, not spend early mornings, late evenings worrying about developing others? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, and it's not as uh, it's not as special as as it sounds. Why I give a shit? I think every generation, there's people that play roles. You know, um, there there there's the Warren Buffetts, there's the Tony Robbins, there's the um, uh, Robert O'Neills that will go and kill the modern day day Hitler, right? Osama bin Laden. Uh, he whacked Osama bin Laden, and uh, and then there's the guys like me, and there's the guys like. And when I'm gone, there'll be someone else giving a shit about men, and there's plenty of other dudes giving a shit about men. It's just this is a role I'm supposed to play. There's always in the opposition, they're playing their role. <laughs> they're just doing really well these days. The opposition is winning currently, but they will not win. They're winning the battle. They will not win the war because you cannot compete against the heart of man. You simply can't. And proof of that is, and this may ruffle some feathers, is Andrew Tate. When Andrew Tate made it to the scene in the last four, five, six months, the stuff that he talked about was so overwhelmingly shared and men were locked on to. Not everything. Like, I don't agree with being married and having multiple wives or girlfriends or what. Like, there, there's certain things. So it's not a black and white thing. But the fact that a man must... Like, like a man thrives off respect and appreciation. You show me respect and appreciation and I will run through a wall for my wife. I will run through a wall for my friend. I will do whatever it takes because that is an inherent need that a man has. When a respect and appreciation is absent for a man from his wife, he becomes a version of himself that is just barely tolerated so that he could survive. He becomes passive aggressive. He becomes sharp with his words. He becomes quiet. He becomes uncommunicative. And that is a version of a man that no wife wants. The opposition has demasculinized, has declawed and defanged men. You cannot stop the desires of a man to go to battle, to experience adventure, and to rescue, to rescue a beauty. And someone's like, oh, to rescue beauty. I'm a woman. I don't need to be rescued. I get it. But it is in our heart to open doors for you, to make sure that we walk on the street side when we're walking together. If we're going up an escalator, that I'm going to be in the back so that if you fall, I'm going to catch you. If we're going down an escalator, I'll be in the front. So if you fall, I'll catch you. There's just certain things that is in the hearts of men. And the opposition has educated us through Hollywood and news media and social media that you don't need to do this for women. And hey, women, you shouldn't expect this of men. And if men try to give you this, they're old fashioned. They come from a patriarchal background and you are equal. We are not equal. I cannot give birth, my friend. The most magical thing that happens to populate this great blue planet of ours, I cannot do. A woman can do that. <laughs> That's just one thing. She can also feed that child from her body. I cannot do that. I cannot do that. I can go and hunt and bring water to feed her so that she could feed him or her, the baby.
but holy cow, we are not equal. And there, I am willing to stand in the gap where maybe she is not, and that is okay too. And so when the opposition has gotten so good at declining and defanging men, because think about this. I, I was telling my son the other day, we're in the hot tub every night. We, we, after we work out, we go in the hot tub together and we just shoot the shit. And um, I'm like, dude, imagine this. Imagine if we went to Mars, you and I, and we're like, all right, we are going to take over Mars. I go, now we could certainly show up with like nukes and shit and blow up cities in Mars. Uh, however, we're also going to do a lot of damage in a country that we want its or in a world that we want its resource. Or over time, we could begin to erode the male species and their desire to fight, their desire to have courage, their desire to have strength, their desire to come together. Look how disjointed men are. Men are more island on living on islands today more than ever. Yet we are tribal. No one man can go fight the Brontosaurus or the saber-toothed tiger. It takes you and me and Ed over here and a tribe of men with spears and rocks and bows and arrows and traps to go and get that saber-toothed tiger. We are meant to hunt together and then to sit around the fire together and grunt about our winning. But we have been disjointed because I like masks, you don't. I like the vax, you don't. I like cops, you don't. I'm black, you're white. Whatever it is, we have been separated so many ways that we are now living as islands and no man needs to live as an island. And so I share this with you because I believe the opposition has a game plan and their battle is, folding, is, is, is unfolding really well, but the war uh, cannot be won by the opposition because they underestimated the hearts of men and Andrew Tate proved that. And we're seeing more and more of that. Like for the last three years that I've been running the project, which is a men's personal development program, when I put out any post about the project, it goes 20x, 30x viral over the make money and self-development post that I put up. Because men realize that is a hollow spot in my heart that I need fulfilled. I secretly want to fulfill. I can't talk about because if I say I want to hunt, I want to battle, I want to adventure, I want to rescue a beauty, then, then they call me toxic. They say I'm too aggressive. You're supposed to be aggressive. The first thing men want to do is they just want to feel each other's strength when we hug each other, when we shake each other's hand. In that moment, we're seeing what is this guy made of? It's in our fucking DNA, man. And they can't take that away. So the war will not be won by the opposition. Let me ask you why. What's their purpose? Why do they want to do that? Uh, the opposition, I mean. Absolute power is absolutely corrupt. And so if I were going to go to Mars again, um, I would want to demasculate, emasculate men, declaw them, defang them, so that make them confused about their roles in society, make them make wanting to to defend their their land and their resources undesirable, so that I could win without firing a single bullet. If I if I control their minds, I control their resources. Mm. Absolute power is absolutely corrupt, and so there's control and compliance over so much resources that they want. That's what the opposition wants. Like there is no limit to how much resources that they want, sadly, right? Uh, like you, you asked me like, hey, Bader, so are you gonna stop? Or are you gonna open up a thousand or 2000 locations? I'm gonna keep going. It is in a, in a heart of man to want more. Um, it, it's, it's just there. It's natural, hold on, but it's yes. nature. Men are the only ones that kind of trim that down, right? You don't plant a tree and then it, it grows halfway and is like, ah, I'm done. Right. I'm tall enough, right? Right. You're just following the laws of nature. You're following the laws of nature, man. And unfortunately, that's what they're doing. And we have trusted them so And that's what happened is we trusted them. Not We were a little asleep at the wheel, to be honest with you. 
And we had things were so good for so long that the opposition not only got into power, but with the economy being so good, ah, go ahead, tax me a little bit more. No big deal. Put more restrictions and mandates. No big deal. Until they started pandemic happen and the news it became so obvious that, mm-hmm. wait a minute, there's my body, my choice, but I have to take this vaccine. I have to wear this mask. And the science is coming out now. And and you're hearing about Kanye West is talking about how the Clintons would call Kim Kardashian right now. Kanye West, who a black man got canceled from social media. And he's not a black man like Candace Owens is a black woman where she's like, you know, pro Republican. <clears throat> and by the way, I'm not Republican or Democrat. I, I, I believe in just run it by the Constitution and let it be. Uh, but I'll just say Kanye West, who is a, a music artist, gets canceled and his social media gets canned because. He tells the truth that his wife, former wife, Kim Kardashian, an Armenian, just like me, is so tight with the Clintons, is getting calls from the Clintons saying, can you on your social media platforms push the need for the vaccine? Now, why the fuck would the Clintons give a shit about the vaccine unless they're invested in it and are seeing financial gains from it? Because they're certainly not in power. What do they care? Like, right off into the sunset and die, you're good. And so that's what's happening is absolute power is absolutely corrupt. And the opposition has no end for the amount of power and control and compliance uh, that they, they will have. And we cannot allow that. This great nation is the only nation that is protected by the Constitution. As you know, you signed up to protect. And when I became a citizen, when you became a citizen, we agreed to protect the Constitution at all costs. Um, I don't even know if people who were born here who haven't been in the military realize that. But when you become a naturalized citizen like you and I, or when you've joined the military, you agree to protect the Constitution. I'm just doing what I was what I agreed to against all enemies, foreign and domestic. There you go. Yeah. What else? More, what else is there to say? Right. Fuck. Dude, I love your I love your passion for it. I love that. I get all worked up, bro. All one right. day one day I'm gonna have like a seizure or something because I'm so fucking hyped up about things. I got a feeling you're gonna kick that seizure's ass. <laughs> <laughs> I got we I know we're uh we we got a little bit of time left. Talk to the men out there about never negotiating with your inner bitch. Yeah, yeah. Um, man, where do you begin there? But it's a very easy place to begin. So every man, every human, every woman, we all have two devils within us or a devil and an angel, I guess you can say. And the way I look at it is there's a critic and there's an advocate, right? And the critic is someone who is always telling you that you can't, or you might fail or watch out, be careful. You've never done this before. It's going to be embarrassing. Now, most of us, if you picture your life as a car, you're driving, you're in the driver's seat, but in your passenger seat, riding shotgun, for most of us, it's the critic. Now, way in the back, in a very muffled voice, you're hearing (laughs) what that person is in your trunk who's duct taped up (laughs) is your inner advocate, your cheerleader who says, Eric, you can do it. You can become anything you want. You're in this great country. You have two arms, two legs a mind and imagination. You can do it. But he's way in the trunk. You could barely hear him. Now, people go, well, can't I just kick out the critic and bring the uh, uh, advocate to the front seat? No, 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 no. By, by universal law, they must both be in the car at all times for the rest of your life. That's just universal law. And if you read 
If you read Joseph Campbell's book, The Power of Myth, you will understand why the dragon and the bear exist. But we don't have time to get into that. But the critic is your inner bitch. It is the voice that helps you negotiate your way out of decisions that will change your life for the better. The inner bitch or the critic will give you the opportunity to live a life of mediocrity versus a life of impact and significance, whereas the advocate wants you to win. Now, what we have to do through self-development and going from human animals that are impulsive, that have no impulse control, that are greedy, that are lazy, that will put our needs over others' needs first, that's a human animal, we have to go towards consciousness, becoming a human being. The more we go towards consciousness, becoming a human being, that is how we take that critic, duct tape him and put him in the trunk and move the advocate into the front seat to then root for us, cheer for us and point us in the direction of greater significance and impact. That is how we take that inner bitch and we hogtie it and put it in the trunk. Never once think that you can get rid of that inner bitch because life would be so boring if you only had the advocate rooting for you and never a negative thought. Like, bro, I wake up some days so dark and depressed. Still, till this day, my wife will look at me. She goes, you okay? I'm like, no, but I know what I need to do to get okay. I'm going to listen to Jack Johnson. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send out more gratitude text messages throughout the day. I'm going to go take longer walks in the sun with my shirt off, like I have a routine and I don't know if I have a, if I'm bipolar, if I'm whatever, and I don't care what it is. All I know is that the critic will win some of the days, just like, just like the opposition, it will win a battle, but it will never win the war. The advocate will always win the war because I've conditioned myself as such. And so this is why we must always have that inner bitch uh, handcuffed and duct taped because they will otherwise get us negotiating with all of our life's goals in terms of money, in terms of relationship, in terms of health and fitness. And the inner critic, the inner bitch will make us choose mediocrity and being average over being a fulfilled savage. And I can tell you this, that, you know, no, no average man has ever made the impact on, on the world on a great scale. So, but the, the inner bitch oftentimes is silent. Is it to keep us to keep us in the comfort zone because it's comfortable to keep us safe? Is that the inner bitch? Yeah, I, I do believe that it does stem from our reptilian mind. Like if you really break it down, it does. Right. You know, you think about the caveman, the caveman's like, man, I'm hungry right now, but I'm not so hungry where I'm willing to go out and fight a saber toothed tiger. You know, I want that apple, but not yet. Right. I can wait till dark when that animal's asleep. Um, and so I think there is a safety mechanism to the inner critic. It is our reptilian mind trying to keep us safe. But now we have so much abundance available to us. We have so much opportunity available to us that that same reptilian mind that tries to keep us safe also keeps us from experiencing a life of meaning, significance, fulfillment, and impact, which we need. Uh, the, the, the first basic human need is significance. Like that is the first basic human need is significance. And without that, we start feeling hopeless. And is that an internal thing or do you find, how do you find significance or how do you feel significant? I think for each person, it's their own thing. Like you have to, it's not lost. So you can't find it. You have to develop purpose. You have to develop significance and fulfillment. Like for me, I realized 
it's helping people. But then I realized I can focus in even more. It's helping men and boys, right? So I knew how, how I can help them. Uh, but I started off by helping people, men and women, with their fitness and fat loss. And as I talked to them, I realized I really love hearing men's problems. And I experienced those problems. I've got a different way of looking at it that, uh, you know, when I give them advice, they take it and their life improves. And I slowly, over a decade and a half, honed in on my sense of significance and fulfillment and what it is. And I think what people ought to do is they ought to explore more. Go get different jobs when you're young. Like if you're in your 20s, don't, don't be locked into holding a career forever. Like go explore and figure out what you want to do. Go knock on doors, do door-to-door -door sales, go build well somewhere, go, go and do some kind of physical labor. And at some point you're going to start meeting people and talking to people and realizing these types of people I love helping, or this type of thing I love doing, it gives me peace of mind. I've got a friend, his name is Chanta. I've had, we're friends for 25 years. He's got four vans, those sprinter vans he's built out. He rents them out throughout Southern California here. And he also rents out his, he lives with his girlfriend and he rents out his condo uh, air, on Airbnb. And then he is in the water at Dana Point where I surf seven days a week, helping people surf. He just loves helping people surf. So he trades his time for money by helping people surf. He loves that. He loves taking a tourist to, the, to California and getting him to pop up on a surfboard. And then he rents out his four vans where people can go explore uh, and his condo. He makes good enough money, but certainly not. He probably makes under 100000 a year, but just close to hundred grand. Sometimes I look at Chanta, I'm like, bro, how do you do this? Like, how do you do like? He's like, I don't have the same desires that you do, but he's so happy. He sleeps so well at night. My kids love him. Uh, he, he's just like, it's just, we have two very different goals, but we've both found our point of significance. Mm. You know, like if I did what he did, I would feel so unfulfilled because I'm like, there's more that I got to do. There's more men I got to serve. What the fuck am I doing in the water? I feel guilty if I'm in the water once a week, like once a month, I can get away with once a week. I feel guilt. If he's not in the water surfing, he feels horrible. Like, yeah. Right. But we had to figure that out. All right. Real quick. I'm super fascinated about so much that you do. And I saw your tattoo that you have here. Yes. And all the other badass dudes that you had with you had the same matching tattoo. And I asked Matt, I said, hey, explain that to me. And so I know what it stands for, but can you just share one? How, how does somebody earn the right to even get a tattoo like that? And what does that symbol stand for? Yeah, great question. So, so this symbol, this is the uh, crest for the project. Uh, the project is a 75-hour personal development program for men that's physically, mentally, and emotionally challenging. 75 hours straight. Um, it's run by a Navy SEAL, Ray Cash Care, Matt Schneider, former SWAT operator, Aaron Alejandriano, uh, uh, MMA fighter, uh, a Marine like you, Steve Eckhart, and myself. And um, we created the, pro the project because we knew that men had a greater desire to be fulfilled and to dominate their four F-bombs, their faith, their family, their fitness and finance. Not just faith as in religion, but faith as in personal development, faith in themselves, right? So faith, family, fitness and finance for a life of fulfillment, the fifth F-bomb. So this crest is when you graduate, you, you and I never thought this would happen. Me and the five and other four instructors got it on our hand. And it's, you know, we wear it on our hats during the project and our shirts have it on there. And uh, after the first class graduated, because uh, about 25% about of the class don't make it through. When, 
you know what, Ed, can you throw me that hat right there? So I don't sit all cockeyed like this. Thank you. So, so here's my project hat. Um, and so after the first class graduated and about 30% ring the bell and quit, never make it through. Um, half the guys were like, Hey, can we get the tattoo? And we're like, yeah, sure. And so now of the 200 or so men that have graduated the project, about 400 men have attempted the project. Uh, and anyone can graduate it. It's just the critic wins. The inner bitch wins the battle in that moment. They, they lose sight of the 75 hour war. And the, the, that one evolution of crawling the pit, pulling the truck, the ice bath, the hike with logs, whatever it is, it's hard. It's not impossible. You're a Marine. You've done this a million times. Um, and so anyway, long story short, the, the two battle axes are to remind us that we are warriors, that we battle, we build, and we destroy. Let's destroy less and build more, meaning we, we will build families, we will build communities, we will build businesses, and we will also have the capability of destroying. So let's do more building, less destroying. The skeleton's head is to remind us that we are mortal, that you're going to die one day, so hurry up and do something fucking awesome. You're running out of time. And then the, the battle helmet is to remind you that you are a warrior and you are always at battle, whether you're at battle in business, you're at battle against the opposition, you're at battle against obesity. And so you're working out like I have fat genes in me, bro. I'm a fat kid by nature. For me to stay jacked, I have to work out and eat right. And so I'm always at battle against my genetics. And it is to remind us that we are warriors and we are at battle. So stay, keep your head on a swivel and had I not had that mentality, um, I don't know, about eight years ago, we were, me and the family were flying back from Maui, and uh, there was a guy that was a flight risk, and I had to choke him out, and the flight attendants gave me zip cuffs to restrain him. Now, if I was just like, oh, I'm just going to fall asleep in my seat, and I always sit on the aisle seat, you know, I always have my assistant, Joan, book me the aisle seat so I can get up quickly. I have that warrior mindset, and I don't think I'm cut out to be a warrior, hell, I went to go join the Marine Corps in 1994. They said, you got flat feet, get the fuck out of here. And I was like, well, that sucks. You know, like, Man. so, but that doesn't mean that I'm not, I'm not going to treat myself as a warrior or as an athlete and always stay sharp and capable and ready to defend. I want to be an asset and not a liability. And so the project is all about turning men into assets, purpose-driven assets who are dominating their faith, finances, fitness, and families and have a life of fulfillment. And it's a brotherhood that we've created. And um, from financial advisors to real estate agents to uh, celebrities and senators, like we've got them all, man, in the, in the brotherhood. It's crazy. Senators actually from different countries even. Um, and so it, it's just a very meaningful brotherhood. And uh, I just can't wait to see it grow bigger. I love it. Bedros, is, um, where do you see most men quitting throughout the 75 hours? Is it one spot that, or is it like all over the place? It's uh, it's kind of all over the place. Most men quit when they start the negotiation process and here's how it goes. So um, I'll just tell you the first secret of it. It starts on a Tuesday at 1 PM and it ends at 4 PM on Friday. Now a Tuesday at 1 PM, when it starts, imagine you woke up at six, seven o'clock in the morning and uh, the, the bus hood, we hood them. Well, I don't hood them. I, I just wait for them. Uh, the lesser instructors hood them and bring them to me. <laughs> That's not my zone of genius, bro. I just want to hug people and save them, right? I'll, I'll, I'll only be get violent if I have to. But the other instructors live for violence. And so they'll hood them, throw them in vans, and bring them over to the compound where you guys were during the Squire program. 
And so they're awake the first 24 hours. And you know this, once you are sleep deprived, you will almost do anything. You will admit to fucking crimes you didn't even commit just to get some sleep. <laughs> and so when you're, when you're crawling through the pit um, and you, you guys got to run in the pit, it's 400 yards of dirt. Well, right? we crawled through it too, low crawl and back crawl. Yeah, That's that right. Fun. That's right. Steve gave you guys a little special treatment. I saw that. So when you're crawling through the pit or you're pulling the truck or you're on the hike and you don't know how long it's going to be. And then we go, hey, the next evolution starting in 10 minutes and you're tired, you're hungry and you begin to go, what am I doing? Why am I here? Right. And you don't think about, let me just finish this next evolution. Or at some point they are going to let me sleep because we can't just not let you sleep for 75 hours. You'll fall asleep. Instead, the negotiation begins. I don't know what the next evolution is. I'm tired and I'm hungry. I don't know how long it's going to be. I, I know it's going to suck and I don't know how it's going to suck. Am I going to scratch myself? Am I just going to keep walking? Am I going to get bruised up? Am I, is it going to be pugil sticks? Am I going to be freezing? Am I going to be hot? Am I going to be in a body bag? Am I going to be pulling a truck? Uh, for all those reasons, I don't know what the fuck is going on. So I quit. And that is the point of quitting is when the negotiation begins. There is no one evolution that, that, a whole bunch of guys will quit at what's the best way to train for something like that man i tell everyone i'm like i can bench i can deadlift i can squat a lot of weight Cardio. at the project we don't do <laughs> any of those right like if i'm 225 pounds right now if i were going to do the project today like i would lose about 30 pounds and i would become highly endurance and calisthenics push-ups pull-ups sit-ups and i'd make sure that i could run five miles straight like at, at a nine minute clip right and um, that's what we're looking for. That's what it takes to get through the project physically, mentally. We've had guys that are fucking athletic beasts like that. Like they could run Ironman and, uh, and they're always younger, interestingly enough, which really tells us our older guys, man, we have mental toughness. When you've seen shit, you've experienced shit, you have toughness. Guys in their twenties seem to quit more and they're in better shape. They could do million pull-ups, million sit-ups, million push-ups. They could run 10 miles at, at a seven-minute clip, but um, they get yelled at by instructor Steve. They're a little tired and hungry, and uh, they get sand in their vagina, and they just go ring the bell. <laughs> All right, Pedros, how can people get a hold of you? Because I promised I'm going to get you off by a certain time, and we're just past that, so I want to respect your time, although I can talk to you for hours, man. Thanks, brother. Uh, best way to get a hold of me is just follow me on Instagram, at Pedros Coolian. Hey, thank you so much for being with us. Bedros. And if you enjoyed this episode, smash the like button, share it, and tell me what was the best part that Bedros shared with you today. Thanks for being here. Have a good day, everybody.